This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today, as part of our Town Hall series in partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network and Indivisible Tacoma, we present a conversation with Chris Rakedahl. He is superintendent of public instruction and he is running for re-election. Our conversation was recorded live on the evening of Tuesday, September 1st. Chris Rakedahl has served as Washington's Superintendent of Public Instruction since 2017. Previously, he was representative for the 22nd Legislative District, and he is currently running for re-election. And he is our first guest tonight. Superintendent Rakedahl, it's good to see you again. How are you, sir? I am great. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Excellent. Excellent. We're, we're, we're excited to have you. So just as a quick refresher for everybody, just remind us of what the Superintendent of Public Instruction does. Yes, this is a constitutional office. Um, Way back in the start of the state, this was a partisan office. Uh, But many decades ago, the voters said, you know, let's make this nonpartisan, which is one of our challenges. We'll talk about it a little bit later. Uh, I've got an extremely right-wing Trump Republican who's opposing me, and I'm a three-term former Democratic House member. So we clearly have our values politically, but it's hard for voters to see that. Superintendent has all manner of supervision of public education. So the money goes out to districts to the office all the accountability, all the learning standards. Um, And then we do all the technical assistance for districts as they're figuring out how to navigate systems, uh, bring in new curriculums, as they need expertise, we've got it, whether it's finance, math expertise, English language arts. um, And then we have a whole food nutrition program. So a huge uh, win this week in getting meals to all of our families. Uh, We've got a lot more work to do because the Trump administration is going to shut that down after December, but we're fired up about that. Well, it's an extraordinarily holistic position, as you are alluding to here, uh, very values driven, which, as you mentioned, we will certainly get into in depth. Uh, this is your first term in office, um, but I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, just give people an idea of your years of previous experience in education and, and specifically why you feel experience matters in this race. You know, I always start with my life experience, youngest of eight and my oldest six siblings spent two years in the foster care system. Uh, My parents were alcoholics and had to kind of rebuild their family after recovery. And so I grew up in a nice sober household after a lot of trauma in the beginning, but uh, it really compelled me to want to go teach. I went to school every day as a kid on food stamps and needing public assistance, but I loved learning. And I said, I'm going to figure out a way to teach and be in public education because if I'm this excited and I can sort of get out of this poverty life. I want that opportunity for other people. So I went on to be a teacher, first in my family to go to college, a school board member. I worked 14 years for a community and technical college system, uh, six years in the legislature at that same time, and then this role right here. So I've touched education from higher ed to K-12 on the governance side of it to the teaching side of it. Um, my whole life has been dedicated to the work. I love the work. Um, it's no easier today than it was when I was a kid uh, for, for a lot of folks, but it's, uh, it's a great system. Maybe compare and contrast a little bit your experience with that of your opponent. Yeah, it's really night and day. Um, our opponent has never worked in public education, has never had a teaching certificate. She claims to be a teacher because she's offered music lessons at a private elementary Catholic school. I've never been on a school board, never worked in public finance, just really no background in public education. Um, And so we have these huge differences of experiences that we attempt to bring to this. Uh, Mine is a background with, obviously in public ed, with a lot of values about progressive interests, a lot of want to dismantle systems of racism, breaking down systems that don't work. And she brings an economic ideology. She wants to privatize. She's been very, very clear. Charters for sure, but definitely vouchers, even for religious institutions. Uh, They've been a disaster all over the South. They segregate, and we'll talk more about that probably, but... uh, 
she brings sort of this really hardcore conservative economic ideology of privatizing the system and free market. And it is the most powerful way to segregate schools and communities. And uh, so, yeah, we are very different people. Indeed you are. And as you say, yeah, there, there are certainly a number of ways in which you diverge that I, I want to get into a little more deeply. But first, I want to give you the opportunity to talk about some of your achievements during your first term in office. It's been very busy. Uh, generally speaking, you've overhauled, you've taken on a lot, you've overhauled a number of systems. Uh, can you just run down a few of your key achievements for us? Yeah, you know, when I ran for this office, there were some things I wanted to do, knowing, of course, that ironically, you don't have your own singular executive power like the governor, nor your own legislative power. It has to be partnerships and relationships. But here we are three and a half years later. We've added $4 billion to public ed. We're the fastest growing economic system uh, in the country in terms of uh, how we invest in our young people. Our teachers have seen the highest increase in compensation in the last four years. We've gotten health insurance to tens of thousands of classified school employees. Um, Our graduation rates have set a record high, and we're graduating students of color at a faster rate than the overall average. So we've got a long ways to go, but we're closing those gaps. A couple of really cool things that are not on people's radar, but it's awesome. We've we've now brought dual language, bilingual learning, elementary schools in 40 districts around the state. Um, Until we are committed to dual language and really honoring uh, heritage language, as well as uh, languages learned, you can't be globally competitive. You cannot suggest for a second that we understand the world and we respect uh, the world until our students can say, I can compete anywhere in the world. And we just haven't done that. Thing called transition kindergarten. Why wait till kindergarten when students uh, are already behind to find out they're in deficit and then we're remediating? We've actually got a program that allows them to get a six month jumpstart, an 18 month experience. So those families get intensive supports, then they're at standard and then they have a lot more success. Also created CTE pathways, career and tech ed by delinking high stakes standardized tests. We've done virtually everything we wanted to do in the first four years, or at least gotten a significant start. Uh, but with COVID, there's so much we have to now rebalance. There's so much we have to rethink about. Um, and we will lose the progress on equity if we are not intensive about, a, about public ed, about really embracing its possibilities. This privatization concept, using COVID as an excuse to tear the system down, will be a disaster. So there's a lot of work left ahead of us. Well, you're kind of anticipating my next question. And I I will just stress for people that we are having 15 minutes with each of the four candidates tonight. And so I'm trying to get to the most pressing questions. And we did get a lot of questions about COVID. Uh, we are about to be in school again. According to the Seattle Times, about 94% of public school students in Washington are going to be learning remotely this fall. So you know, as, as well as anybody, that this is a very difficult time for parents, students, teachers. Talk about why it's important to keep you on the job during this challenging time. You were alluding to it already, but I'd love for you to go a little bit deeper if you could. Yeah, so a couple of things. I mean, obviously, this is a once in a hundred year pandemic. We hope, right? Let's hope we don't do this again anytime soon. And right now, more than ever, you have to have relationships with the governor's office, with the majorities of our legislature, uh, be willing to be in every community and see students as the priority. Again, not some philosophy or ideology, but really see the unique needs of students. Now, this is a tough time because we do have a million students learning remotely to start the year. Department of Health and the governor really set that framework. Again, that's not something OSPI can decide. I can't go in and say, we are definitely going to school. We're going to close them down. Uh, Those are other authorities. So our job was to respond. Get 100,000 devices in the hands of kids who didn't have it. Get 100,000 connections to broadband for families who don't have it. And if they don't, then make the schools get those kids in for in-person learning so that every student gets access to their basic ed. We had to bust our tails in the last three weeks to get the U.S. Department of Agriculture to ensure we could feed every family who needed food. 
And so our office facilitates this massive effort on equity to get kids access to food, quality learning, whether it's remote or in person, all those wraparound supports. And of course, we're doing that in partnership with local districts who all have local school boards making their own sort of independent decisions on how they'll deploy. We just create the conditions so that they can do it as safely and effectively as possible. So this is an enormously weighty question that I'm going to drop on you and uh, with the limited time we have, but it it is something that we alluded to earlier, and so I would like to get to it. Let's talk about values, educational values. What do you consider to be the key values that should inform our public schools? Well, first and foremost, equity. The concept of public education was um, not in our origin, right? We we started as a country of, of elites, of racist background, if you were a person of color, if you were a woman or you were a non-property owner, uh, even white male, you didn't participate in the democracy. So this is a country that's actually chosen a system of universal access at the age of five and ultimately a commitment through the age of 18. It is the most democratizing tool or institution we have in the country. We dedicate 53% of our state general fund to it. That's how important it is. Every student, the opportunity to not just learn next to somebody who might be very different from them, but to learn from each other in classrooms. So that's one of those values that I cherish. When folks say, no, give them all their little piece of the pie and let them run to their own faith community, their own church to get their education or or stay in their own part of their neighborhood, you go back to the origins of vouchers, uh, started in the Jim Crow era, and it was a move by, by white folks to try to create elite segregation for themselves. We've broken that down for 60 years. We have these community schools that we support. And it's just so important that we stay focused on that. We've got work to do. It's not a perfect system. It's got flaws. Um, it is not just in many cases, but it is our best opportunity at democratizing, giving people opportunity. And its purpose is to lift up individuals. Um, and obviously, when you do that, you build an amazing workforce, too. You give them opportunities to be uh, entrepreneurs or to work for somebody. Uh, and you certainly underwrite the economy with great education. But it's not going to be what it needs to be until it's focused on equity, and we still have work to do in that. So equity, community, lifting up individuals. This, and when we spoke, uh, this this very much, in your opinion, runs counter to what your opponent brings to the table. Uh, you believe she wants to see what, she, what you refer to as a two-tiered system. Can you explain that? Yeah, ultimately, when you voucher a system, when you privatize it, when you say, you know, it's not about community creating assets and supports for families. Instead, it's like a you know, there's a certain amount of money and everyone gets their piece of it and then they run off and purchase it wherever they want. When you do that, you create a two-tiered system. What happens, we saw in Louisiana, we've seen it in Georgia, we've seen it in Alabama and other places, is families with resources grab their voucher. They say, well, we're doing this in part uh, for some pretty sinister reasons. They go to places that then add a tuition because those families can afford it. And suddenly your best schools, the heaviest investments, the ones with the most resources, are only full of people who grab their voucher, which is equal, right? It's not an equity approach. They all got the same in Louisiana after Katrina, but a tuition piece was put on it and only certain families with wealth and privilege could go to those schools. Everyone else is left in the system that is remaining, which no longer has that shared interest. Usually your levies just get destroyed because people don't want to vote for something when their kid's now going to the elite school. Um, transportation usually goes away and people say, now that you have a voucher, you're going to get yourself to school. Um, It is the most segregation-based approach possible. And you create really two two Americas, two economies, two different communities. And um, I cannot think of a more damaging thing. And I'm disgusted, if I can use that word, that we are in a moment of crisis where we really have to come together 
and people across this country, including my opponent, is saying now's the time to create that system. While everyone's under duress and they're frustrated and they want to be in school, let's now crack that door open because once they think they can do it, folks won't want to ever come back to that system. Before we let you go, I want to give you the opportunity to address something. Uh, This is something that your opponent published in a voter pamphlet. It contained what your attorney referred to as a, quote, defamatory statement about you in it. What can you tell us about this? Yes, so my opponent published a flat-out lie, and the courts caught her. But unfortunately, it's going to stay. So believe it or not, she's got a statement in the voter's guide that says uh, the incumbent championed a policy to teach sexual positions to fourth graders because she opposes the new comprehensive sexual health education law passed by the legislature. The lower court said you have two tiers you have to meet, prove that it's wrong, which we did, and prove that it's defamatory, that it harms you and it was malicious. The lower court agreed with us. It came out of the voter's guide. She appealed it to the state Supreme Court. The state Supreme Court did not disagree with the lower court on it being untruthful, but said, you're an elected official, the bar is high, and we don't know whether it's damaging to you until there's an election. That's the irony of this. And so they put the statement back in. Uh, The courts understand it to be false and and untrue. And here, every single voter in their pamphlet is going to have this thing. And it's because they're opposed to a bill, I mean, get this, that teaches kids from kindergarten through 12th grade how to create a safer environment for themselves, how to protect themselves from sexual assaults, how to reduce sexually transmitted infections, uh, how to reduce... um, the risk to themselves uh, of pregnancy when it's unwanted. And it's stunning. 29 other states do this. Parents have the right to opt out. These are locally adopted curriculums. This isn't actually very revolutionary at all, but boy, this is the centerpiece for the state Republican Party because normally on a presidential year, Tim Iman would have put a tax issue on the ballot to get their base. He was running for governor. So they made this the centerpiece issue. Um, it is just so grounded um, in evangelical uh, basis, which I respect them personally. That's why there's an opt-out right. But to tell communities that you are not allowed to teach this stuff uh, because some folks are offended by it is to deny equity uh, for families who really need it. And boy, are there folks who need a science-based, medically accurate system of sexual health education. Well, there are going to be people who are calling on your behalf, making phone calls, phone banking. And I think you've just given a, a great rundown of talking points uh, to refute what is on that that ballot. Um, before we let you go, give us an idea of what sort of help you need with this point in your campaign so that we can help you get over the finish line in November. Well, I really appreciate that. You're going to hear from three other amazing candidates, and they get to put a big capital D next to their name because they're clearly Democrats, and everyone gets to see that in the, in the voter's guide. When you get down to this statewide race, it's the only one where both candidates have to file as nonpartisan. And so people look at this and they go, wow, they both look good on paper. How do I figure this out? What we really need um, is folks in the indivisible community to be talking about the race, saying there is a clear progressive in this race and there is a Betsy DeVos clone in this race. I mean, really, her policies are straight from the DeVos background. Um, And we really got to have folks talking about it. They got to be on social media about it. And they've got to be talking to their friends. And I know it's old school, but when you jump on email or social media and you tell 20 or 30 people, hey, this is the can I'm supporting and here's why, that's more information than they're ever going to get in a race this far down the ballot. And as you said earlier, everyone's got to get down the ballot. Usually there's a 20% drop off in this race from governor to OSPI. Um, it was a little less than that in the primary, which means her base uh, was very motivated. We got to get our base to come all the way down that ballot. So Appreciate it. I'll throw in the chat again the address to the website where people can volunteer, can endorse, can donate, can get more information. And because this is going out to a radio audience as well, can you give us that uh, in verbal form? 
I can. ChrisRakedahOneWord.org. The problem is that last name, R-E-Y-K-D-A-L, a proud name from uh, Iceland, where my father's side is from. ChrisRakedahOneWord.org, one word, Chris Rakedahl. That is tremendous. Superintendent Rakedahl, it's such a pleasure. Best of luck. We will, uh, we will be by your side. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Thank you again to Superintendent Chris Rakedahl. Thanks also to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julie Anjievsky with Indivisible Tacoma. And that is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Thanks this week to Catherine Fysears. Special thanks to Lori Colwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.